0: When we show people around the site at Encyclopedia Virginia, we like to point out our virtual tour of Anne Spencer's house. You don't have to physically go to Lynchburg. You can just click on the tour and walk around this amazing, brightly colored space, which is packed with early 20th century art and a wonderful introduction to Anne Spencer, an African-American poet of the Harlem Renaissance. It also contains a few surprises. To see what I mean, first you need to travel south near the North Carolina border. That's where Annie Bannister was born on February 6, 1882. She was the daughter of Joel Bannister, a formerly enslaved man, and her mother was Sarah Scales, who was born after the war in 1866 in a tiny little town called Critts, very near another house that still exists, a plantation manor called Rock Spring. It was built in 1843 by the merchant Hardin Reynolds. He married that year, and the couple had 16 children. Eight survived to adulthood. Four of those were sons, and one of those sons was none other than R.J. Reynolds. R.J. founded his own tobacco company in nearby Winston-Salem, and you could say it did pretty well over the years. Which brings us back to young Annie Bannister, who later became Ann Spencer. If you tour that house of hers in Lynchburg at 1313 Pierce Street, you might find yourself upstairs and in the guest bedroom. That's where you'll find, hanging from the wall, in a beautifully polished wood frame, a portrait of the tobacco baron himself, R.J. Reynolds. That picture on the wall, that powerful white man looking out over the bed, this is the story of Virginia. I'm Brendan Wolfe, editor of Encyclopedia Virginia at Virginia Humanities. On this episode of Not Even Past, we consider the life of Anne Spencer. In an earlier episode, we met Bethany Vaney, an enslaved woman who feared what she called the unbridled lust of the slave owner. She feared it so much, in fact, that when her own daughter was born, she thought it might have been better if they'd both died. The Spencer family might have understood that sentiment. They have long believed that Anne's mother, Sarah, was the daughter of either R.J. Reynolds or his older brother, A.D., but rather than run from that fact or from the violence and humiliation implicit in that possibility, Anne Spencer claimed it. She put it on her wall and in her guest bedroom to boot. That way, all the visitors could see it, too. This tells you something about this remarkable woman. Soon after young Annie was born, the family moved to Martinsville, where her father opened a saloon. Her parents split up, and she and her mother relocated to West Virginia. Sarah couldn't properly care for her daughter, however, and placed her in foster care. When she was just 11 years old, Annie was sent to Lynchburg and enrolled in the Lynchburg Baptist Seminary, which had opened just three years before. One of its founders, John M. Armistead, was himself the son of slaves. He also was one of the great Baptist orators of his day. When Annie Bannister enrolled in 1893, she could barely read and write. Six years later, she graduated as her class's valedictorian. While in school, Annie met Edward Spencer, a fellow student who went on to become Lynchburg's first African-American postman. The two married and had three children. From 1910 until 1912, Ann Spencer taught at her alma mater, and that's where she crossed paths with a man who hailed from the present-day Congo Basin region of Central Africa. He belonged to the Mbuti group of what people still sometimes call pygmies. His name was Atabenga. He was about the same age as Spencer and had lived a traditional life in the Congo when territorial police raided his village, killing his wife and two children. He was sold into slavery and was eventually purchased by an American missionary for a pound of salt and a bolt of cloth. That missionary put him on display at the St. Louis World's Fair and then at the Bronx Zoo. He lived in the monkey enclosure but was allowed to roam the park freely during the day. He used a bow and arrow to shoot squirrels. Crowds of people came to gawk at him, while others protested the indignity of his condition. An elderly French woman even wrote the zoo with an offer to purchase him. Finally, the backlash forced the exhibit to close, and Benga lived in an orphanage on Long Island for three years. In 1910, he moved to Lynchburg to attend the seminary. That's where he met Ann Spencer. Atabenga taught Ann's son, Chauncey, to hunt and he spent time with her in the elaborate garden she had cultivated behind her house. In the end though, it was all too much for Atabenga: The death of his wife and children, the enslavement and living literally as an animal, the culture shock of Lynchburg. He killed himself in 1916. Eight years later, in 1924, Ann Spencer became the librarian of Lynchburg's Black High School, Dunbar. The school library there was the only library in the city open to Black patrons, so in effect she was the city's chief African-American librarian. She helped found Lynchburg's chapter of the NAACP and led a campaign to hire African-American teachers. She also spent much of her time at home, writing. In 1919, one of the early leaders of the NAACP, James Weldon Johnson, visited Lynchburg on business. Johnson had served as a diplomat in the Roosevelt administration, published an anonymous autobiography, and under his own name published a book of poems. He was an important figure of the Harlem Renaissance, or what was known at the time as the New Negro Movement. Upon meeting Anne Spencer in Lynchburg, he was quickly impressed by her poetry. She was prolific, jotting poems down on paper bags, the backs of envelopes, whatever was handy. But she wasn't sure about publishing. Even Johnson admitted that her verses were, quote, perhaps too unconventional. He referred her and them to H.L. Mencken, the Baltimore journalist, literary savant, and publishing insider. But Spencer rejected his attempts at criticism and declined his help because she said he was not a poet. In this way, I think, we get a hint at what Anne Spencer was like. A bit eccentric, an artist but a fiercely independent one, hardly a fame seeker, and perhaps even a bit of a homebody. While many Harlem Renaissance types were quite naturally preoccupied by race, Spencer was not. Johnson once said that practically none of her poetry has been motivated by race. While Spencer herself put it this way, I write about some of the things I love, but have no civilized articulation for the things I hate. What Anne Spencer loved was the natural world. It was something she shared with Audubon. She loved her home at 1313 Pierce Street in Lynchburg, and in particular, she loved her garden. She once wrote a tribute to Elizabeth Barrett Browning in which she contrasted the prim precision of the English garden with the riotous beauty of the Blue Ridge. It meant everything to her. Spencer's garden became a central part not only of her life, but even her fame. It hosted a cottage she called Eden Crawl, which combined her and her husband's name with sacred spaces such as Eden and the African Crawl. As early as the 1920s, she turned that cottage into an artist salon, hosting the likes of W.E.B. Du Bois, Paul Robeson, Langston Hughes, and Gwendolyn Brooks. Part of this was the fact that African-American travelers were not welcome in most hotels for at least the first half of the century. This is why the now-famous Green Book was published. The 1956 Green Book for Lynchburg lists a hotel, the YWCA, and four so-called tourist homes, what I imagined to be a bit like bed and breakfast. Edencrawl became a tourist home for the black elite, a place where they could talk politics and literature and walk in Ann Spencer's gorgeous garden. Now, of course, you can go to Encyclopedia Virginia and take the virtual tour of this space. You can look at that picture of R.J. Reynolds hanging on the wall, and you can walk the garden. You can think about the tobacco empire, the Mbooty man, and the Harlem poets who all cross paths here. But it's really something to go there in person, as we did recently. We went to Ann Spencer's house in Lynchburg, and there met her granddaughter, who runs the Ann Spencer House and Garden Museum.
1: And we are sitting in the sunroom, and I'm sitting in my grandmother's chair, which I don't very often get to sit in, yeah.
0: Sean Hester is dedicated to telling the story of Ann Spencer, but she didn't always feel comfortable disclosing her relation to the poet.
1: When I first started doing the tours here, I wouldn't tell people that I was Anne Spencer's granddaughter. I would do the tours as, as if I was a third person.
0: And what, what was your thinking behind that? I didn't really think about it.
1: I just thought that, you know, that I need, that that was the way that I should do it. I, I don't, sometimes I would slip up on those tours in the beginning when I wouldn't tell them who I was, and I would make a mistake, and I would try to be this third person, and then I would say, oh, my grandmother or my grandfather, they would look at me, and um, and then they would say, you didn't tell us, you didn't tell us. And I, and I, And then I realized that I really was, denying them of a you know of an experience and I and I really started sharing more stories about what I remember here being as you know as their grandchild and and these stories that 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 I was sharing with them that I was as a third person and not saying that this story was passed down to me from my grandmother or passed down to me from my grandfather and 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 I think it really started, legitimizing also these stories. So I've learned now that it's a really important thing to say um, that I am Ann Spencer's granddaughter.
0: Her familial connection became important as she drew on her interior design background to prepare her grandparents' house for reinterpretation.
1: So I thought, well... I'm going to take on this project, and this is the best project of an interior designer ever, where I can come in, and nobody can tell me what I can do and what I can't do, because I'm also her granddaughter. Right. But I felt like I needed some direction or somebody to just tell me, it's okay what, you're, you, know, what you want to do here. And so I call up Travis McDonald from Poplar Forest, who, oh, yeah, you know, man. who's the He's architectural really historian, there at Poplar Forest. And so Travis comes over, comes here to the museum and meets with me and I, and I explained to him, you know, what I wanna do. Now I wanna keep as much original as I can. And so, you know, we had a discussion about it. And so he says, you know what, Sean, what I would do, I would, I would think about what would your grandparents do if they were still living? What would they do to that wall? What would they do to that chair? What would they, you know, how would they continue on? caring for their home. And so that's been my attitude. And so I just kind of take one room at a time and I shake out the rugs and I polish the furniture and I wax the floors and I clean the windows and I find slipcovers up in the attic and try to figure out what does that go on and where does that chair go, What does that, oh, that goes with that, and, and start what I consider staging
0: the museum. Eventually, she got the museum up to snuff and started giving tours, and she started facing some pushback that she didn't expect.
1: When I first started doing the tours, I sat at the bottom of those steps and I thought, What am I going to tell these people? (laughs) You know, I don't know what to tell them. And so I start reading what's written. Um, and so that's how I start, and then I, and then I start incorporating these oral histories, and I thought, um, for every time I do a tour, I'm going to add something else. I'm gonna, and so that's how I built up my tours. And I would say, well, you know, I remember you know, my father saying that Paul Robeson sang here and how the house rumbled, you know, those stories. They would say to me, well, how do you know that? How do you know that that's true? Mm-hmm. And and at first it bothered me and it, what and I was you about it, it bothered me that they were that they didn't accept the oral histories of an African American as the truth. Mm-hmm. And so once I got over being angry um and I was able to really think about it then I realized well African American stories are not in our history books. And so and this oral history is a part of the African-American culture. And this is how my stories and our stories and their stories have been passed down through generation, through generation, through generation. And when if those stories had not been passed down, then that's how, the, how that's how our history is not known. My father used to make us sit there, and we were like, Oh, my God, I would
0: say, God, if I have to tell the story one more time, I'm going to die, Dad, please, you know. One of the things that when Miranda and I were talking about oral history, one of the things that I've found in some of the research that I've done, even into family history, is that I I think a lot of people are just sort of skeptical of oral history in, in general and maybe African American oral history in particular, but but I was I've actually been surprised that where you are able to verify and a lot of it's really true, you know? Things happen, and people tell stories about it, and it gets passed down. And some of it's really amazing and crazy, and you can't believe it, but so is a lot of stuff you read in books, you know? Just the fact that it's not written down, people people are culturally programmed to be skeptical of it.
1: The biggest compliment that I get at the end of a tour is, thank you so much for sharing your stories. It's not about the stories that they can read Online, or they can read in a history book about James Weldon Johnson and Langston Hughes and Paul Robeson and all these wonderful people who came here. It's the stories that were passed down to me that are so interesting to the visitors to know.
0: So tell us about your your book. How did it start? How long have you been working on it?
1: Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Seems like forever. Um... So uh, so it really kind of culminates from my work here. I would give these tours, and I would tell these stories, and people say, I hope you're writing this down. I hope you're writing this down. I would, like, hear that in the middle of the night, like, I hope you're writing this down. It's was like, oh, I hope you're writing this down. And it's like, and I'm trying to, um, I'm cutting the grass and doing the hedges and doing tours and taking down wallpaper and painting and, Stitching up holes and you know, all kinds of kinds of stuff you know around here that, that needed to be done, and thinking about this book in my head for probably three years. So one of the things that I'm doing in my book is I am taking some of these oral histories that have been passed down to me, and I am looking for written reference to it. If you're skeptical, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dig up some more, and I'm going to tell you more. And so now I'm, I'm reading their books, James Gwynn Johnson likes to use all these other books, to see if there's some reference about them coming here to Lynchburg, of why they came here to Lynchburg. Maybe where were they coming from? Where were they going? What did they do here? Um, I also want to show people that African-American oral histories are important and that they need to be considered as legitimate.
0: So can you tell us just about your grandmother? What was she like? What was, what was it like to know her? What are your memories of being around her?
1: This picture here is really how I remember my grandmother upstairs above this room was her dressing room and she had a um, a dressing table and um, she had this dish and it had ribbons in it all these different colored ribbons and she would you know she would brush her hair for like an hour and you sit there and you talk to her and she'd brush her hair and she was just so patient and nothing nothing moved her fast she went at her own pace you know, it was just really nice to be slowed down. So my father was military, we were all soldiers and you know, kind of thing. She just moved really gracefully and really slow. But she would get these ribbons as she's talking, and she would tie them, you know, at the top and then she'd tie them at the bottom, but none of them matched. Just like she'd take a pink one, then it didn't matter. It wasn't like she was trying to even match what she had on, like we you know, like I was trying to do, um, as a little girl. Um, and I love the way that she mixed her patterns, even on her, even with her clothing. It's it's the same as her home, you know, that she could wear plaid pants and a flowered shirt. And I would try to do that, and my brothers would make fun of me, like it wasn't. I couldn't pull it off the same right. way.
0: In the eighth grade, Sean Hester learned that her grandmother was known and admired by many around the world as a poet.
1: My English teacher stops me in the hall, and she says to me, Sean, I'd like for you to read one of your grandmother's poems. And I'm looking around like, are you talking to me? (laughs) Like Like, my grandmother? And so I was like, okay. And so I go home and I ask Dad, I was like, Dad, is Dranny a poet? Is this, you know, Mrs. Smith asked me to read a poem at eighth grade graduation. He's like, yeah. So he pulls out all these books. James Weldon Johnson's books and County Cullen's books and all these books that she's published in. And I'm in the eighth grade, remember. And so some of my grandmother's poems are very long Mm. and, and, you know, hard to, to, to interpret especially for an 8th grader, even for an adult. Um, and so my selection decision comes down to selecting the shortest poem that I can find. And it is um, her poem, Dunbar. Dunbar. Which I recite at my 8th graduation. All how poets sing and die. Make one song and heaven takes it. Have one heart and beauty breaks it. Chatterton, Shelley, Keats, and I, oh, how poets sing and die. And so that was kind of the first time the light kind of turns on. And, and it's just um, a year later that she passes away. And my family is now living in Lynchburg, Virginia. I, I enroll in school here. It really is this time in my life that I'm really starting to understand and know my grandparents through their spirit being here. And I do feel like they're here. There's not a time that I don't walk in that door or walk out of that door that I don't say hello or I don't say goodbye. I know it may sound odd to people, but um, it's just, I feel like they're here.
0: To read more about Anne Spencer and go on a virtual tour of her Lynchburg house, go to EncyclopediaVirginia.org. Music in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. This podcast was produced by Miranda Bennett.